You are listening to 89.5 FM KOPN Columbia, Mid-Missouri's source for in-depth news, diverse talk and music of the world. It is so much more than radio. It is your community radio on the web at kopn.org. And this is Speaking of the Arts. Good morning and welcome to Speaking of the Arts, Mid-Missouri's only in-depth weekly art show. My name is Diana Moxon and I am so happy to have you along for the next hour of arts chat this week with one very special lady. It is always a privilege and a delight being able to put this show together every week talking to people about the arts, the roles they play, the exhibits they organise, the books they write, the albums they perform, the festivals they manage. And every now and again, an opportunity comes along where I get to talk with someone who is a force of nature. And that's what I got to do this week. She was born in 1926, the same year that this song, Muskrat Ramble, was recorded and released by Louis Armstrong. And Louis Armstrong is a man who is the subject of a one-man play called Satchmo at the Waldorf, which is being performed at Columbia Entertainment Company for four nights next weekend. And the one man in this play is the grandson of my special guest in the first half of the show. I've definitely had relative pairs on the show before, brother and sister, husband and wife, but I think this is the first time I've had the chance to interview grandmother and grandson. So let's find out who she is. There are those times in life where you see someone being so brilliant at what they do, or you hear about a person moving mountains and creating real change, and you think, damn, there is so much talent and passion in the world. And then I think, ooh, I would love to sit and talk with that person. Well, this morning we get to do that with not one, but two people who have inspired me with their talent and dedication. And no surprise, maybe, they are related to each other. Richard Harris arrived in Columbia in late 2018 and within a few months was on the board of Maplewood Barn Theatre Company and performing at Talking Horse Productions, which is where I first saw him in a play called Boy and in which he was mesmerising, as he has been in everything I have seen seen him in since then. I immediately asked him to come and chat on Speaking of the Arts, at which point I found out about his grandmother, the incredible Miss Opal Lee of Fort Worth, Texas, the impassioned leader of the Juneteenth movement, a campaign to recognise June the 19th as a federal holiday, commemorating the day in 1865 when Major General Gordon Granger landed at Galveston, Texas and delivered the proclamation that the enslaved were free and that in fact... They had been free for two and a half years. Welcome to the show, Miss Opal Lee of Fort Worth, Texas, and Richard Harris, now of Columbia, Missouri. Thank you so much for having me. <laughs> Hello, Dad. <laughs> Richard, next week you open a one-man play at Columbia Entertainment Company called Satchmo at the Waldorf, which will play both in person to a very limited audience and also live stream online. And Miss Opal, you just received the Hospitality Award from the City of Fort Worth for all the tireless work you do to improve the quality of life for its citizens, including your determination to build an African-American history museum for the city and turn a former Ku Klux Klan 
and building into something positive for Fort Worth, a home for arts and culture. So it is rather difficult to know where to start, but I think as Miss Opal is more venerable, undoubtedly busier and has the prettier hair, I am going to start with Miss Opal. So Richard, you just practice your golf swing for a little while while the girls talk. Absolutely. (laughs) So Miss Opal, you have so many causes about which you are passionate, but let's start with the one which you have been associated with the longest, the call for June the 19th to be recognized as a federal holiday. And it's a day that you've celebrated since your childhood in the 1930s in Marshall, Texas, and then in Fort Worth. So take me back to those early celebrations and tell me what it meant to you as a little girl. Well, it was all festival. Oh, I enjoyed it. I enjoyed the music. Uh, the sack races, all the activities at the fairground in Marshall, Texas. Oh, I look forward to Juneteenth. Well, when we moved to Fort Worth in 1937, well, Juneteenth, not so much. You celebrated with your family or friends, but I got involved in the Tarrant County Black Historical and Genealogical Society. And we ended up putting on the Juneteenth Festival. And would you believe a tiny little park in Fort Worth called Sycamore Park? We had 30,000 people in a three-day period, 10,000 people a day. Never had it before nor since. But I have tried so hard because I've been involved with Juneteenth and in charge of Juneteenth for the past 40 years. And we have wanted it to be just like what we had doing Sycamore Park. Mind you, at Sycamore Park, the Historical Society took out exhibits, you know. But now Juneteenth festivals always have educational components, health components, the music, the art. And you might be interested in the art. Well, what happened, the Arts Committee gave the public school art teachers 12 freedoms gained by the enslaved. And the children were told about them, and the children drew what they thought about some of those 12 freedoms gained, 800 of them, and 300 were jurored. And we were so delighted that that many children knew something about Juneteenth. So this past year, we weren't able to do that because of the virus, hoping this year that we'll get back to where we were in that regard. But because we had fabulous parades, no parade this past year, but we had what was called a caravan. I walked two and a half miles from downtown Fort Worth to Will Rogers Auditorium. Thought I'd have 25 or 30 cars. Would you believe there were 300 cars that followed? Oh, I was delighted. Oh. 
And so we're planning to have a caravan again this Juneteenth. However, we are going to have all the other activities that we missed. And I must tell you that the children of different ethnic groups got together and they traded songs and mine, all these kinds of things. And so they'll do it again. And children learned about each other. I was so proud. I really was. We also had a play. It was written by a young man, Greg Ellis. I think he used to be one of those cowboys. I'm not a sports fan, but he wrote this play. And it is something everybody should see. And I'm sure you can see it virtually, you know. Uh, And do you know, there is a movie, Miss Juneteenth, and I'm in it. I'm not Miss Juneteenth, but I'm in the movie. So find that movie and look at it, please. (laughs) I did see there was a movie called Miss Juneteenth. And for a moment, I thought maybe it was a documentary about you. Uh, but I didn't know you were in it. Well, I'm glad you're in it. You should be in it. <laughs> I am not surprised that 300 cars followed you in the Juneteenth parade this year. I'm surprised it wasn't more. That was amazing. And so we're asking people now, because this past September, we took a million point five hundred signatures to Congress to let them know it's not just one little old lady in tennis shoes and her group, the National Juneteenth Observance Foundation, wanting Juneteenth to be a national holiday. And we propose taking that many more before the end of February and Black History Month. So if your listeners would go to juneteenth.us and find the link and sign the petition. They'd make me the happiest girl alive. We will ask them to do that. And I want to get back to your DC visit in, in a minute. And I will say that I already signed the petition last year. So good, good. can I sign it again? Does it count twice? No. <laughs> well, I want to go back to a particular June the 19th, which was not a day of celebration for you. It was a day of horror. And I don't want to dwell on it because I know it is not something that you have allowed to change your life. But would you take us back to June the 19th, 1939, and tell us what happened? Because it is important as part of your journey. Well, my parents had bought a house at the corner of Annie and New York Street in Fort Worth. And my mom had it fixed up so nice. Little two-bedroom with a living room in the kitchen and all that good stuff. But on the 19th of June, people began to gather. And we didn't know what was happening, except it turned out that they didn't want us in the neighborhood. And so the realtor that sold the house went to get my dad, who was at work, and dad came with a gun. And the police who were there, the paper says they were 500 strong. But those police told my dad that if he busted a cap, they'd let that mob have us. Well, my parents sent us to friends on Terrell Avenue, 
and under cover of darkness, they left the house. Those people tore it asunder. They burned furniture. They did such mean and despicable things. And I thought, gee, if they'd just given us a chance, we would have shown them that we could be good neighbors. My parents never talked to us about it. They worked and worked and bought another house. Uh, I'm not sure how that affected me, except I know that Juneteenth is a unifier. I know that if we can celebrate Juneteenth from the 19th to the 4th of July, that would be freedom. We weren't free 1776. So I keep telling people, I keep walking, I keep talking, that if we would unify, if we would work together, that we could accomplish so much more and do away with the disparities that exist now. The joblessness and the pay that's not equal, uh, the health disparities, you know, um, climate change. Gee, down here in Texas, we are having some weather like we've not had in I don't know how many years. But I think if we would address climate change, we wouldn't have these often. And then there is educational system where we really need to teach the truth and let people know what happened so we can get past that and begin to build on it. I'm a part of a committee. In fact, I get to be a part of so many darn committees. But this one, there is a building out on North Main Street in Fort Worth. And it used to be, it was built for the Ku Klux Klan. Well, we want to take that building and put some art and some theater and some other little nonprofits in there and our Juneteenth Museum and let people know that we can do things that are good and enrich out of something that was horrible. So, like I say, I keep walking, I keep talking, and I just hope somebody hears me that we can do so much together rather than apart. If you are just tuning in, I am talking with activist and leader of the Juneteenth movement, Miss Opal Lee, with her grandson also here, actor Richard Harris. So talking about your walking back in 2016, you walked to D.C. from your home in Fort Worth to petition the government about recognising Juneteenth as a holiday. What inspired you to walk rather than, I don't know, take a car or a plane? Well, I got to thinking about it and I just thought I was pretty close to 90 then. And I said, I don't need to sit here and walk and wait for the Lord to come get me. He's going to really have to catch me. And there's some stuff I need to do before I go. And so I gathered some people, my pastor at my church and the musicians at my church and my county commissioner and a school board member. And we had a little ceremony. 
and they sent me off on my walking tour. Two and a half miles I walked that afternoon to symbolize that the enslaved didn't know they were free for two and a half years. So the next morning, I got up and started where I left off. I, I walked past Dallas, Texas. I did over 150 miles doing two and a half miles each time until my team said, no, that's not the way it's going to be because someone had offered us an RV so I wouldn't have to go to the motels or go back home or something. But they reneged. They decided what I was doing was too political, please. Well, my team said I'd only go where there were Juneteenth celebrations, uh, where I was invited. And do you know I was invited all over these United States? I mean, Shreveport, Texarkana, Little Rock, Denver, Colorado, Madison and Milwaukee, Wisconsin, Atlanta, down in Alabama, all over. And so, I was still doing that two and a half mile walk. I got to Washington, D.C., January 10th, 2017. And we had asked President Obama to walk with us from the Frederick Douglass House to the Capitol. But he was in Chicago. That didn't happen. But I haven't given up. I just know that there's so many things that I learned a long time ago that you just have to keep at it. I don't care what the obstacles are. You gotta keep at it. So I'm wanting a million point five hundred thousand signatures to take to Congress this February. So if everybody who's listening will give us their signature, we'll be there. Well, last year, when the Black Lives Matter rallying cry was really heard around the world, you doubled down on your efforts to get signatures. And I think, am I right in thinking that at the end of May, you had about 80,000. By June the 19th, you had 800,000. And by the fall, you already had one and a half million signatures, which you took to Congress. What made it all take off so rapidly? I know you had some key friends. Yes, I did. A young man named Diddy, <laughs> and then there were others. Oh, I wished I could call their names right off. But these young people had followings, and they told their people, and do you know we got that 1.5 million signatures and nothing flat? I'm so delighted to know young folk like that. Um... There's one in New York. Oh, what is that youngster's name? I just love him. Nico. Nico! Nico Brim! Oh, yes! I just love the child, you know? And there were others. Loopy? Um, there, there were so many others, if I could just remember their names. And we should say that when you say Diddy, you mean P. Diddy, as in the former Puff Daddy. Yeah. Huge celebrity names. And they all got behind your campaign. Now, who did you meet when you were in D.C. that time? This time, when I was there, 
I met Senator Conyers, and then I met um, Senator Lee, and then there were some others that I met, Sheila Jackson Lee out of Texas that I wished I could get to talk to right now because I wanted her to offer the bill because we've got to start all over, you know. And if she would just offer a bill that we could get through Congress and the Senate now, she's the person because the Texas delegation, she heads it more or less. She's the senior person. And it's up to her to make that happen. And so I'm going to try again to get in contact with her. So we can all contact our senators and our representatives and ask them to support the bill that will be coming. And yes, people can go to your website and sign to have their name on that petition. Ms. Opal, I want to ask you about your role as a lifelong educator. You have a Bachelor of Arts degree, a Master's in Counselling and Guidance. Tell us where that passion for education started. Well, I'd have to start with my grandparents, my mother's father and mother. My mother was the fifth of 19 children. My grandmother had three sets of twins, bless her heart. I always thought she was a saint. She was tall and regal-like. My grandfather was short and jolly. You'd have thought next to St. Nick's he came first. Oh, he was a delight. But he had a work ethic that those 19 children couldn't get past. And he drilled it into them. Had 40 acres in one place and 40 acres in another, and he couldn't hire hands, so they grew them. And I had uncles, one in particular, who said he was going to get as far away from that farm as he could get in Texarkana, Arkansas, and he left home, and he got to Little Rock. And that's where he made a living. That wasn't very far. But my mom, my grandfather would offer each child land and a horse or so when they decided they were leaving home. But my mother thanked him and said, no, thank you. She didn't want that life. And she had been in school in Marshall, Texas. And that's where she met my dad. And really, that's an exciting story because my grandparents had to go pick her up from school because she got ill in Marshall. And my dad followed him to ask my grandpa if uh, he could marry her. My grandpa is mischievous. And he said to him, are you sure you want this sickened? As if he had some others that he could do. <laughs> well, my dad, <laughs> before he left, my mom told him she'd marry him if he would build her the house. She drew it for him on a slip of paper that she had seen at Tuskegee Institute when she went for a 4-H club outing. And my father left. She didn't hear from him for two years. When he came back, he told her he had built that house. And so they were married 
and the dog run. Now you got to know what a dog run. There's a house, and on either with the roof, and on either side of the rooms, and here's this opening, no doors, pigs, chickens, anybody can get in and out. And it was called the dog run. Some people said dog trot, but anyway, my mom and my 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 mom was married in the dog run, and well, and Marshall. My father had a job at Fryhard's Drugstore, and they had an ideal life about 12 years. The Depression, my father came to Fort Worth to find work, and he was going to send for his family, but he never got around to it. So my mom sold whatever possession she had, only cow, and she... On a train with three of us, I had two brothers. We came to Fort Worth on Saturday, and on Sunday she was working in somebody's kitchen already. And we were on the west side of Fort Worth. In fact, the family that took us in was from Marshall. There was a Mr. Talon, his wife, and two children. And they took my mom and the three of us, and we lived in service. That means there was a house behind this huge house that Mr. Talley was a caretaker. It had been somebody's home, but they turned it into a medical library. And the little school, it was called Cooper Street School, was in walking distance. And for six weeks, that's the school I attended. And would you believe years later, they had changed the name of it to Amanda F. McCoy, the first lady principal. And that principal, wasn't Miss McCoy, that principal had asked the superintendent for a teacher. And I was the gal he sent over there. I was delighted. <laughs> I really enjoyed. Well, my father found out we were in Fort Worth. Okay. My parents found a place for us on the south side of town. Uh, we roomed at a house. The family that owned the house lost a family member, and they were bringing that body back to lie in state. Well, you need to know that we all left that house like the rats from a burning ship. We found other places, another place to live. Finally, my parents bought that house I told you about, and then after moving so many times. My brother, my younger brother said, we moved 17 different times before they bought another place. And of course, that's another life, finishing high school at 16, getting married. And my mom was so disappointed because I would have been the first grandchild to go to college. And it took me four years and four babies to find out I was going to have to raise a husband, too. You know, men don't seem to mature as fast as women. So I cut my losses, tears meeting under my chin, took my kids and went home to my mom and had nerve enough to say to her, I'm ready to go to college now. And she said, I'm going 
got no money to send you to nobody's college. But she said, I'll keep your children. And I worked, I don't know how many jobs to get that money to go to school in the fall. And took the money and spent it on a television so the kids, my mom wouldn't have to run all over the neighborhood looking for them. I went to Wiley College. It's Wiley University now. Without a dime. And they put me to work in the bookstore. And that was like, oh, throwing a rabbit in the brow patch. I got through in three and a half years. And um, teaching position, they paid $2,000 a year. So I had another. You couldn't feed kids off of $2,000 a year. So I had a ride to school. I'd clock in at 8. I'd clock out at 3. There'd be a car waiting for me. I'd clock in at 4. And out at 12 at Convair, where they made the big planes and whatever. I guess I'd still be doing that, but I got laid off. <laughs> well, Miss Opal, your story is so amazing. You you are such an inspiration to so many people. If everybody knew your story around the world, you'd be an inspiration around the world, not just in Fort Worth. But I am going to put Richard under the spotlight for a little while now and have him tell us about the play that he's in, because that's also why he's here today. So, Richard, take yourself <laughs> off mute, stop practicing your golf swing, and um, oh. you're back in the hot seat. How am I supposed to follow that? Wait, wait a minute, <laughs> wait a minute. How am I supposed to follow that? <laughs> and there's no way in the world I can follow that. You know, I, I tell you what, there's this part in this play when, when Louis says about his trumpet, he says, everything I am in this world, comes out of this. <laughs> That's my grandmother. Everything I am in this world comes from that. I owe all of that to that woman and my mother. Everything. Everything that, the way I think, the way I am in service to people. The, I, you know, I belong to Alpha Phi Omega National Service Fraternity Incorporated. Zeta Phi Chapter, Howard University. The reason why I chose that fraternity is because in its name is service. I got that from that lady right there, serving the community. I mean, my earliest memories is going with her as she served the community. And that's what she did. That's, 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 that's like natural to me. It's natural for me to say to people, you are a human being with, and you should have dignity and I'm going to make sure that you get that. That's what she is. That's what I grew up knowing. And then you heard all the stories. I mean, how many grandkids can say they know all of that about their family? Because they sat at their grandmother's knee and she talked about it constantly. And she made sure, she made sure I knew where I came from. Everything that she could tell me. She might not know it all, but she's got these, you know what I'm saying? I'm listening to her and I've heard all those stories before, but because she's an educated, an educator, because that's her soul, I'm still like riveted. It's like, that's where I pull all the things that I get from acting from or just um, entertaining or any of that. I get that from 
that. Storyteller in chief. Absolutely. Everything I am comes from that. So how do I follow that? I don't. I just say, thank you, mama. Thank you, mama. (laughs) Thank you for everything you've ever done for me and anybody else. Yeah, I think a lot of people owe a huge debt of thanks to Miss Opal Lee for the inspiration and the work that you've done. Incredible work in the community and continue to do so. Food banks, the farm, the city farm, you know, she put people to work, folks that were incarcerated. She gave them jobs coming out of that incarceration for redemption, for getting back. She gave them jobs at that farm, you know, giving them something to do with their hands, things that they could be proud of. She did that. And last year, 7,700 pounds of discounted food was grown on that farm. Absolutely. To give to people. Absolutely. <laughs> I forgot to tell you about it. <laughs> You're telling about it if you let it. <laughs> There's so much. I mean, really, we could do a whole month of shows just on on Miss Opalie, and we'd still be missing stories out. Absolutely. There's there's so much. There's so much that you do. Absolutely. Well, her being here is hard to even try to talk about anything I'm doing. Well, I mean, you are uh, you are going to be performing as another great leader of the 20th century, uh, Louis Armstrong. So. Let's talk a little bit about about the play. It's a one-man play, which is a huge undertaking, and it's going to be at Columbia Entertainment Company. It's written by a Missouri playwright called Terry Teachout, who based his research, or based the play on the research he did for his 2009 biography entitled Pops, A Life of Louis Armstrong. So, Richard, tell us a little bit about the play. Wow. Well, it is exactly what you just described. It is a tremendous undertaking, and uh, I feel... I feel honored to even get an opportunity to try it, but I am terrified because it is so wonderfully written. It is so full of who I think people should know the real Louis, his real journey. Because, you know, because he's an entertainer, you get that movie lushed over part of Louis. You get that smile, but you don't get why the smile and you don't get that behind the smile. And uh, that's what this play is about. It's uh, profanity. I mean, because jazz musicians in the 20s, 30s and 40s and 50s, they had very colorful language, especially if they were dealing with a lot of gangsters. And that's the other person in this play. And that's Joe Glazer, his manager, which was a part of uh, Al Capone's gang, you know, and he became Louis Armstrong's manager. Well, Louis had a a few managers, but he was the one who stuck with him for 40 years and actually got him when his career took off. He's the one who made sure that happened. And so um, that's this play. And uh, it's like I said, it's terrifying, but I am so excited. And hey, I like a challenge. I'm up for it. Well, and the the trumpet is your instrument too, right? You Absolutely. you won a, a spot at the prestigious Howard University in DC. You've won awards and accolades. And so as a young trumpet player, what was your opinion of Louis Armstrong? Well, see, I'll tell you this right off the bat. My grandmother actually bought me a Bach Stradivarius <laughs> trumpet when I decided that's what I wanted to do. If you only knew how much that trumpet costs. <laughs> And she actually bought that for me. So that's how passionate I I became about playing the trumpet. And it was because of a a gentleman that just passed away. His name is Hamilton. He was my middle school teacher. He was the one who uh, actually introduced me to the horn. And he just passed away. He was a trombone player. 
and uh, rest in heaven, Mr. Hamilton, James Hamilton. And uh, that's what, what started me on my journey of playing the trumpet. And it became a competition, trying to be the best, wanting to be the best, wanting to be popular, you know, and that's what started it all for me. I had my stepfather, his name is James Derry. He was very, very passionate about jazz. And one of the people he was passionate about was Miles Davis. And that was Miles Davis kind of blue. And I spent hours trying to play one song off that record. I never did master it, but that's what started it all for me, was just trying to be the best, trying to show off, trying to let people know that I exist. And so I wanted to be the best at it. Well, Miles Davis is the third person that you p- play in this play. There are there are three of you. There is Louis Armstrong, there is Joe Glazer, and there is Miles Davis. And the relationship between Miles Davis and Louis Armstrong is an interesting commentary on how Louis Armstrong was certainly viewed at the later in the later part of his life. Miles Davis didn't particularly care for Louis Armstrong. He thought he was an amazing trumpet player. He didn't like how he performed. He didn't like how he seemed to be subservient to the white audiences and to the white manager. So if you were a fan of Miles Davis growing up, did you therefore inherit some of his dislike for Louis Armstrong? Absolutely. I mean, Miles Davis was 1960s black power, Ungawa. You know, black's beautiful. Say it loud. And he said it with a trumpet, you know. Of course, Miles was my hero because of when my generation, but I learned going to school when I learned about that instrument, when I learned about music, I learned who Louis Armstrong really was and why Miles Davis, even though he was the direct opposite of Louis Armstrong, while he admired and revered him for what he did for jazz, for what he did for music that he loved with all the passion he had in his, in his heart. Louis Armstrong is jazz. He's the reason why jazz swings. He's the reason why jazz sings. He's the reason why people scat. You know, he's the reason why. So, of course, once I got in school and started learning my craft and learning that instrument, Louis became the man. So the play flits back and forth between Armstrong, his manager, Joe Glazer, and and his detractor, Miles Davis. And I'd love for you to read a section from the play. And I did. It's tough to find a part of the play that isn't expletive laden, which doesn't really work on public daytime radio. However, there are a few paragraphs that are clean enough that I found in succession. So the passage opens with Joe Glazer talking about how he gave Armstrong advice about how to succeed. And then Armstrong comes in and he's reminiscing on his success. So you'll hear Richard be two people in this section. First Joe Glazer and then Louis Armstrong. Look, I knew how to present Louis. Those other dumb putt managers he had, none of them had a clue. When I come along, he was still doing that crazy jigaboo stuff. I mean, smoke dope, get on the stage, sing that mush mouth, jungle bunny, mumbo jumbo play a thousand high C's in a row. Fine for the jazz fans, but how many jazz fans are there? You got to play to the crowd. Let the people know you ain't no goddamn spook 
with a razor in your pocket. So Louie comes to me and he says, help me, Mr. Glazer. Tell me what to do. And I sit him down and I say, look, Louie, you want to work for me? Here's the deal. Forget the critics. Forget the musicians. Stop blowing your brains out playing all those goddamn high C's. Ain't no money in it. That voice of yours. That's where the money is. Play your cards right. Do what I say. And one day you won't even have to play that trumpet. You can just stand there and sing. You're an entertainer like Al Jolson or Sophie Tucker. So start playing for your public. Sing so people can understand your words. Wave that handkerchief and smile like you don't have a care in the world. Do that. You're going to make 10 times as much money. Didn't have to think twice about it. I mean, why should I? You got to do what you're made to do. And always knew I was too good to be playing those honky-tonks down there in New Orleans all my life. I know it right here. See, you want to please the people. Can't get too far ahead of them like them goddamn B-poppers done. So I took Mr. Glazer's advice. And I done changed my tune. Cut way back on those notes. Those high ones. Started singing more of them pretty songs. Oh, Always did like those pretty songs, Satchmo Way. All I had to do was just put a little spin on them. Folks out there, they done lapped it up, just like Mr. Glazer said they would. Especially the white folks. Oh, wee, how the money just rolled in. Then this one night, we out on the road playing in the movie houses in Chicago, back where I used to live in the good old days. Well, anyway, they show these Looney Tune cartoons before the feature. And you know what? I'm in it. Look up on the screen, this trumpet playing angel, and it's me. Can't, can't get no more famous than that. Fantastic. I, when, I was, when I was reading the play, and, and I watched a documentary about Louis Armstrong, and I think, you know, this play is set in March 1971. It's just four months before Armstrong died. At that point in his life, there's so much weed smoking and singing and trumpet playing that has gone into his voice. Talk to me a little bit about finding the voice for each of these three men and and how your vocal cords feel at the end of a performance. Oh, wow. Well, of course, you know what that kind of thing can do to your voice. But, you know, the one thing that I have found out is there is no way in the world you can actually recreate Louis's voice because it is a one of a kind thing. It's just one of a kind. It's, there's no way you can get that sawmill, you know, and that's what made him special. That's, that was the genius in him that he could actually, he used to say, I'm really not that great of a singer, but I sound pretty. I can make songs sound pretty with this sawmill voice of mine. You know, people like it. People uh, are mesmerized with it. People are taken in. So, so of course, me trying to, portray him, I had to imagine what I would sound like after all of that weed smoking, after all of that drinking, after all that partying coming through at that time. If I had a voice like that, what would I sound like? And that's what I pull it from. As far as um, Joe Glaze is concerned, of course, you know, it is a 1920s gangster. I'm standing on top of the world, mom, standing on top of, you know, I mean, see, that's, that's just the 1920s gangster. So that's where I, I get this character in my head from. Miles Davis, I love the man. Look, I had an opportunity to be on stage with Miles and the whole time he looked at the jazz band. 
He never once looked at an audience. He looked at us the whole time. He played maybe four or five notes, but he was Miles Davis. And he just stood there and he just looked at us the whole time. And he was talking to us the whole time. And the people behind him was like clapping and trying to get his attention. He turned around. He, he wouldn't even turn around. He'd just go to the side. Bip, 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 bip. And then he'd look at us some more. So I kind of knew who that character was, you know. So and that, that's where I get those voices from. Now, you are doing all of these three characters without leaving the stage, without changing your clothing. I mean, you are you are Armstrong reminiscing the whole time. I mean, you are you are getting undressed out of your stage gear. And, and so there is a degree of costume changing going on, but you are never wearing the Miles Davis outrageous outfits. I mean, you're doing everything with your voice and with your mannerisms. Imagine me doing Miles Davis in my underwear. That's Miles Davis on stage. <laughs> Imagine me doing Joe Glazer putting on my putting on my pants. That's Joe Glazer on stage. So it's like you have to your imagination has to go okay. This he's actually reminiscing. This all is taking place in his head right now. All of this is taking place in this 70-year-old Louis Armstrong's head right now. Was this a bucket list play for you? Did you know about it and want to do it for a long time? Just little sketches. I had heard about it. And of course, we've been in this COVID thing. And I've been just, I mean, you know, we all, especially us actors and entertainment people, we are so used to being extroverted. You know what I'm saying? Being around people and not being around people is driving me nuts. It's like a fever. So when Enola at CEC said, hey, Richard, would you be interested in this play? I was like, let me audition, please. And right now, I want to audition right now. Just tell me when. And so I was just, I'm just lucky. I'm just lucky to have an opportunity to be scared out of my wazoo trying to do this thing. I can't think of anybody else in the local performance scene who could pull this off in the same way that you can pull it off. Even though I haven't seen it yet, I know it's going to be brilliant. We'd like to see what happens. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's a huge amount of work. There are only four performances of this. Absolutely. Right? It's next Friday, Saturday, Sunday. Hang on, there's a, must be, there's a fourth one somewhere. Yeah, it's Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, the 25th through the 28th. And I'm going to tell you, something like this, it's usually 90 days you get an opportunity to try to do this thing. I had less than a month to try to do this thing. So it's going to be fun. But I'm going to treat it just like a workshop. You know what I'm saying? And that's basically how plays start. They start in workshop form. And you work them to get them on your body. And so that's what I'm doing. I'm going to be, I'm doing, I know what this is. I've bitten this big piece off this apple. And I know that it's just a workshop. You just got to do it. And you just got to, what comes, what may. But you know what? I think I'm going to travel with this thing. Because I would like the opportunity to do it in Fort Worth and Dallas. I would like the opportunity to do it right around Juneteenth in Fort Worth and Dallas. And if I get these shots in me, these vaccines, I'm going home and I'm going to try to find me a venue and I'm going to do it there. And then I'm going to try to get to other places and see if I can work it up that I can do it all year long. If you are just tuning in, I'm talking to actor Richard Harris, who will be starring in Columbia Entertainment Company's production of Satchmo at the Waldorf next weekend. And also here with him today is his fabulous grandmother, Miss Opal Lee, activist and leader of the Juneteenth movement. 
Miss Opal, were you a fan of Louis Armstrong? Mm, I knew about his music, but, you know, music, I love all of it. And I'm going to be delighted if that youngster comes down <laughs> this way with that play, you know? <laughs> yes, I wish. I hope he does, because it just seems like a, a crazy amount of work to learn all of that dialogue to only deliver it four times. There's a lot of heartbreak and anger at the end of Armstrong's life towards his manager, Joe Glazer. When Joe died in 1969, so two years before Armstrong, and he's, Armstrong is quoted in the New York Times obituary for Joe Glazer, and he says... What can I tell you? Asking me about Joe is like asking a child about his daddy. He's my daddy. He's been my daddy for 40 years and we ain't never going to die. Not one of us. So he's going to be my daddy for 40 more years. And this is a well-documented part of their lives together. So it's not giving anything away to have you talk about what soured that relationship between them after Joe's death. Well, when Mr. Glazer died, and by the way, that's all... Uh, Louis would call him as either Pops or Mr. Glazy. He never called him Joe ever. And uh, when he died, you know, they start, as far as Louis was concerned, they started together. They started together and they helped each other. You know, they split, which is very rare, especially today. They split the profits right down the middle, right down the middle. And um, Joe Glazer became very famous because of Louis Armstrong. In other words, he became a very famous promoter and manager of mostly every colored act that was worth anything back then. He, he managed Duke Ellington. He managed Billie Holiday. He managed Lionel Hampton, Dinah Washington, even B.B. King. And it was based on, of course, him working as a manager, his talent as a manager, but it was also based on those, and I call them colored, that's because that's the part in the play that he refers to black people. He refers to African-American as colored, and that's why I called him that. But African-Americans looked at what was going on with Louis, and they said, I want the same thing. Well, who's giving him that? It's Joe Glazer. So they all flocked to Joe Glazer and gave him. And so at the end, when Joe Glazer died, Louis had in his mind, that the company was, you know, that Joe would leave him some of that company, if not all of it, because based on their, their relationship, well, he didn't leave him anything. He didn't leave him anything. He gave him a couple of dollars or whatever. And Louis was already a rich man. He was comfortable. So that actually soured him really bad on Joe because he felt like, you know, he treated me like most white folks would treat black people like they were less than. And so that's, that's, I think that's what the sour was, but teach in the play, he makes it plain and obvious what probably went down, what might have gone down to make that thing the way it was, because he felt like the feelings of Joe Glazer, as far as Louis was concerned, was mutual. Louis thought of Joe, older man, as a father figure, and Joe thought of Louis, a younger man, as more like a son to me. Of course, Miles Davis would have had no sympathy for his predicament because he hitched his star to a white man. And, and that was not what Miles thought that black performers should do. Absolutely. And see, Miles, 
brought his own baggage with it too, because Miles was raised a certain way and being a certain way and having a certain identity and having a certain experience, he could never in his life understand that this could be, you know what I'm saying? And you got to understand that uh, he just didn't see it that way. He didn't see it that way based on his experience. His experience was, even though Louis Armstrong experienced way more intolerance, way more intolerance than Miles ever did. But see, Miles David had an opportunity to experience life without the intolerance based on my character. I'm, uh, he got that, that thing where Louis didn't get that thing. He didn't get it's based on my character. It's like I got to do even more than my character to even get a, a hint of respect where Miles was like, wait a minute. My father didn't raise me like that. And you're going to treat me like that? that that's not going to happen. Where Louis was like, I ain't had no father. I had to work for everything I had. And I have to prove myself constantly. I think the play does an incredible job of really explaining Louis's life. Absolutely. I mean, there's, there's so much to his life. There's so much they could go into. But he really pinpoints those moments of change and of direction with this long career. It's, it's very well created play. Richard, tell us a little bit about the practicalities for how people who want to watch or attend the play, what do they need to do? Okay, well, first of all, we still we're still involved with this COVID, but they're telling me that I'm going to be able to do this thing without a mask. But that doesn't mean the audience is not going to be able to be masked up. I think that's basically what has to happen there. It's going to be, of course, the social distancing is going to be uh, involved. But I can tell you this right now, it is profanity laden. So it is not for the youngsters at all. I don't even think it could be a PG-13, but it is a PG involved, at least a PG, because it, um, it's true to life of a jazz character in the 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s. It's true to life. And it talks about those things. It talks about things that might not might be uncomfortable to you, but it's the same thing that my grandmother talks about all the time. You have to look at it. If you don't look at it, we can't get past it. We can't get past it if you don't look at it. If you don't say, yes, black people were enslaved in this country and they've been treated, they've been treated oppressively for years. And, and the oppression and, and not being able to buy a house in this neighborhood and not being able to have a bank account has a lot to do with where they're standing in this society. If we don't talk about it, then we can't get past it. You can't say, then you can't have the empathy to say, well, you know something? Let's fix that. Let's fix that. I see it. Let's fix it. Well, that's the same thing about this play to me. You have to talk about what makes it what makes it what it is to see it for what it is and then have the empathy for the characters that's involved in it. And you get this true experience of the art of it. So I think I'm right in thinking that it is, like you say, it's Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, next week, the 25th to the 28th. Oh, don't scare me. That's scary. That's, that's next week. Oh, that's scary. <laughs> <laughs> the evening performances are at 7.30 and there's a 2 p.m. matinee on Sunday. But of those four performances, only two are streaming. You can stream it Saturday evening and the Sunday matinee. So the Thursday and Friday shows are only going to be live and in the theatre. Do you know how many people will be allowed to attend each night? I think it's 25. 
Don't hold me to it, but I do believe it's 25 and things are fluctuating. Things are in flux right now because of uh, where we are. You know, it could be it could be less based on us getting the UK stream and out of control, or it could be more based on all of the declines that's happening, especially in fatalities and that kind of thing with COVID. So if we get enough people, you know, who knows? But I know right now it stands at 25. 25 are or that can come into the theater and see. And uh, I think that's what you were getting at. How many ways can you see this thing? Of course, it's going to be streamed. I, I'm pretty sure that you can go on the website. I'm pretty sure you'll give it to them because I don't really know it. I, know. I should know it. But, but um, <laughs> you go on the website and, 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 and purchase a ticket to watch the streaming of it. Well, I have had such a lovely hour talking to you both. My illustrious guests today have been community organiser, civil rights activist and Juneteenth advocate, Miss Opal Lee, who joined us via Zoom from her home in Fort Worth, Texas, and her grandson, musician, actor and star of Columbia Entertainment Company's upcoming production of Satchmo at the Waldorf. If you would like to sign Miss Opal Lee's petition, the website to go to is the real opallee.com and I will put that on our Facebook page as well as well as on the website for the show so that you can go there and sign it and she would like your signatures by the end of February please because her next trip to DC is coming up and if you want to see Richard's show the website is CEC Theatre Org, and that's spelled R-E, like the English way. And the show runs from the 25th to the 28th with two opportunities to live stream the performance on Saturday the 27th and Sunday the 28th. Miss Opal and Richard, thank you so much. It has been such an honour. Thank, thank you so much, you. Diana. Thank, thank you. you so much. Hey, Mama. <laughs> yeah. I see you. I love you. All right. Bye. I see trees of green, red roses too. I see them blue for me and you. And I think to myself, what a wonderful world. I see skies of blue. Clouds of white, the bright blessed day, the dark sacred night, and I think to myself, what a wonderful world. That is it for another week. What an incredible honour to have the chance to speak to the one and only Miss Opal Lee. I feel sure that when Miss Opal calls, everybody says yes. So I am incredibly flattered that when Richard called her, she said yes to me. All the Speaking of the Arts episodes are available as podcasts, which you can hear at Speaking of the Arts .transistor.fm as well as on Spotify and you can connect through the KOPN website at kopn.org As always, my thanks go to my guests today, Miss Opal Lee of Fort Worth, Texas and Mr. Richard Harris of Columbia, Missouri. 
Thank you also to guitarist Yasmin Williams, whose song, Restless Heart, opens and closes the show. You can find more of Yasmin's music and her new album on her website at yasminwilliamsmusic.com. Finally, thank you so much for listening. I'll be back next week with more peeks behind the arts curtain. Until then, stay arty, Columbia. Columbia.